So yeah, First Timothy chapter two verse twenty-six uh, talks about uh, the, the snare of the devil and about those who are taken captive by him at his will. Now, before I show you uh, several kinds of different kinds of snares and tell you a story related to, to snares and traps. Uh, let me tell you several things uh, about snares and traps. Um, first of all, any kind of snare, any kind of trap, is, uh, is for all practical purposes a snare. Um, a snare or trap is used to catch something unawares. Uh, some snares are effective because uh, they uh, they are are uh, hidden. They are set in such a way that they are camouflaged. You can't tell that they there. An animal comes along and and it can't tell that there's a snare there, and so it can get caught in that snare because it's hidden. And then some snares and traps are effective because. Uh, uh, there is there is a bait uh, connected with the snare and trap that draws the animal into the snare or the trap, uh, and so that's a, that's another way that uh, snares uh, are effective. Um, and so um, I want to talk to you and show you different kinds of snares, uh, several different kinds of snares. Ancient, the, the older kind of snare that was used even in Bible times was uh, was a simple net uh, like this, except it was probably a much bigger. Um, and they used the net like this uh, and, and had weight around the outer edge attached to the outer edge of the snare, and so that so that they could they could if this snare was ten feet around they could throw the, the net and the, the weights would flare out and, and it would circle around and come down over top of, uh, of whatever they wanted to catch. So that's probably the oldest kind of snare that you read about in the Bible. In fact, in Psalm 91, it talks about the snare of the fowler. Do you know what a fowler is? No? Um... A fowler is uh, it's a bird catcher, um, and uh, and one of the ways that the fowler would catch birds is that would they would dribble some food uh, in close to where the fowler was hiding behind something, dribble some food in there, and then so the birds would come in, uh, follow the food in, and and be around there, and then he would throw his net. And the net would, would settle down over top of the birds, and when the birds try to fly up, it gets entangled in the net, and uh, they were caught. Because and so that so the net was uh, what was used by the fowler to catch birds. And so he was. This was the, the snare of the fowler. Now there's uh, also a, another kind of snare that. It was it was a, it was made from a, a, thing, a simple wire like this. In fact, North American Indian people uh, use use this kind of snare uh, in 
for many years, and they're, they still use it. Uh, boys, uh, young Indian boys, still use uh, a wire to set a snare to, to go out in the wintertime and catch snowshoe hare. And, and uh, the way they do it is that they, they take this simple little piece of wire like this and they, um, and, and they, they uh, hold the, the one end together and twist it around and, and, and make so that it, has, it can slip like this. And, and so they, 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 uh, they take this piece of wire and they um, uh, and, and make it so that it would be about the size of, a, of the head of a rabbit or a, a snowshoe hare. A snowshoe hare is actually a, a kind of cotton-tail rabbit that uh, has bigger feet and, uh, and can run in the snow without sinking in too much, um, has longer legs, and uh, it has certain paths that, in, in, in the wintertime, you go out into the woods, into the bush, Canadian bush, and you'll see where snowshoe hare are running. They have a certain path they run in. And, uh, and so you find those paths where the snowshoe hare is running, and, uh, and, and you still find a place where there's uh, a lot of brush, and they have a little hole through the brush at one spot. And, and so they, they, uh, what they do is they take this, this, this snare wire and put it down about the height of the, uh, of the rabbit, of the snare, the, the uh, snowshoe hare, and, and set it there. And then they tie this around a piece of willow that may have been bent down and kept there in some way, and they wrap this in around that piece of willow. And so when the, when the snowshoe hare comes along on his path, he, he, he doesn't, he's not aware that this is there. Uh, but he comes along, his head goes in here, the rest of his body doesn't go through, and so it, it, and so it tightens up on him when he, when he tries to go through. And uh, when, he, when he disturbs it like this, and then that, uh, that willow, piece of willow that was bent down to which this was attached, snaps up and it, it, it holds the, uh, the snowshoe hare there, and, and, and he dies in, his, in the snare. So that's a, that's a simple kind of snare that is used still in Northwestern Ontario by Indian children, Indian boys and girls, and especially boys. You know, they like to go out and snare rapid and, uh, and bring them in for, for their family to eat. Now, there's, a, there's another kind of uh, snare. It's a more modern kind of snare. And that is uh, this kind of snare. It's really a trap. Any of you know what this is? What do you call it? Huh? What do you call it? What? A mouse trap. Exactly. It's a mouse trap. Um, how many of you like mice? Oh, you like mice? You have a pet mouse? No? Um, now, that's interesting because... Um, my wife doesn't like mice. In fact, she'll clean if she sees a mouse. Uh, but, uh, but this is, yeah, exactly. This is a mouse trap. It's really another kind of snare because it's made to catch, catch mice. And uh, it, has, uh, it, it has this metal, this heavy metal uh, uh, frame here. That, that you pull back and it's controlled by this spring here. It has a, uh, a, a, a trigger 
uh, which, uh, which you, you set with, you know how it works, right? Um, this is very strong, um, and I don't want to get my finger fingertips, but it's, and there it's set. But, uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a mouse trap. So that's a simple little uh, kind of snare to, to catch mice with. Well, I want to tell you a story about when I was a little boy, about five or six years old. And uh, my, my uh, mom and dad and my brothers and sisters, uh, I had many brothers and sisters. In fact, I was number 13 in my family. And, uh, and, but uh, most of my, all of my brothers and sisters were older than me, and they were more grown up. And when I was about five or six years old, um, we lived in a, in a farm that had a long lane back in, uh, up in, in the state of Ohio. And um, back in that long lane, we had a, an 80-acre farm. And uh, we, had, we had a chicken house that was down over the hill from the house, away from the barn. Uh, it was down over a hill down here. We had a good-sized chicken house. And, uh, and, and that chicken house had lots of rats in it. Uh, not mice, but rats. You know what a rat is? Have you seen rats? They're like a mouse, except they're big. And some of them can be that big and have a tail yet, and they might be that long with a tail. They were big, big rats. And my father said to me uh, one day, he said, Wayne? No, he didn't. He said, Venus. You know my name is not Wayne. It's Venus. And he called me Venus. You know why he called me Venus? Because my real name is Sylvanus. And Wayne is simply my nickname. And so he said to me, and so my siblings and my mom and dad called me Venus. Those were the nice things they called me. Um, and I want to tell you what else they called me sometimes. One of the things they called me was Sylvanus. I, I don't understand why. Um, but so they, so they, one day my father said to me, Venus, um, I'll give you five cents for every rat you catch down in that chicken house. And, uh, and so that was many, many years ago. And five cents seemed like a lot of money to this five- or six-year-old boy. And, uh, and he knew that I knew that there were a lot, of, a lot of rats down in that chicken house. And I just knew that I was going, I was going my way to fame and riches. Because, uh, because I was going to catch rats, and I was going to get five cents for every rat I catch. Now, five cents would, could buy a nice big snicker bar, and I like snicker bars. Do you, too? Huh? And, and you do, too? Yes. Uh, and so, um, uh, so I, five cents seemed like a lot of money, and so I, uh, so I started... Uh, figuring out how I was going to catch these rats. And I had a trap that was something like this. One of the traps I used was something like this. It was twice as wide and twice as long. Have you ever seen that? It's called a rat trap rather than a mouse trap. But it's just exactly like this, except it was wider and longer. And that was one of the, the, the traps that I used to, to catch these mice. I had other kind of traps, like a uh, you know, a spring trap uh, that the number two spring you'd step on and set the trap and, and uh, that sort of thing. But I, I used these kind of traps that were wider and longer 
And um, and I knew I I I, I knew where the the, uh, the rats were in the chicken house. They would come from often they would uh, come from the outside. They had holes on the outside underneath the chicken house, and uh, they would. Um, uh, they would come out of those holes, and then they had holes. Uh, then they had tunnels that would, and holes that would go inside of the uh, chicken house into where we kept the feed, and they would go in and, and uh, eat from the chicken feed that we kept there. And I know where the holes were. I knew where where the runways were, and I figured out how to catch these these mice or these rats. And so um, I one of one of the things that I discovered about rats was uh, they like they like a number of things to eat, but they especially I discovered they especially like bacon. So I would take a piece of bacon and I would I would stuff it onto the center of the fat like that, and then and then not only that I would I would take a match and strike a match. And I would sizzle the bacon. And you know what sizzled bacon smells like? You get up in the morning and you know what bacon smells like when your mother is frying it, huh? It smells good, right? Well, that's exactly how it smells. And and so um, uh, I uh, so I, I I would sizzle the bacon and then I would set the trap and uh, and and I would and I'm, I was so sure. I would catch a rat uh, out of that hole that came out from underneath the chicken house. That uh, I took my I took my trap and I set it there right on the edge of the hole where I could see it. And I went around the corner of the chicken house and I and I just peeked around the corner to that and set the trap. Now, I was so sure that the rat could smell us and would come get caught in the rat, the trap, that I just, uh, just stepped back around the corner and I, I watched it. And as I was watching, this is what happened. As I was watching, suddenly I see this sharp little nose come out of the hole, and it was wiggling real fast like that. And I knew that it smelled and and, uh, and and that the nose just kept wicking real fast, and uh, and as I was watching, it would get closer, come further and further out of the out of the, the trap, uh, out of the out of the hole toward the the center of the trap, which had the sizzling bacon, and 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 as I watched, it would come closer and closer and closer, and suddenly it just. For the for the pickled bacon, and I had myself another rat. So uh, I I caught lots of rats that year, and uh, I made what I thought was lots of money accepting uh, rats. Well, um, what I what I want you to remember about this story is that um, Satan sets snares and traps. 
for men and women, boys and girls. And Satan knows how to bait the trigger of the trap. And you know what the Bible calls the, the bait that Satan puts on the trigger of the trap? It's called sin. And he knows how to make sin look really, really good. And it attracts men and women and boys and girls. But what I want you to remember that sin is on the trigger of the trap is what Satan uses to, to draw boys and girls, men and women, into his snares, into his trap. Now, um, I want to tell you, uh, give you a, 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 an important small verse, and, and I believe it's found in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11. There's, there, there, there are two words that I want you to remember about uh, what, what it says in, in this passage in Peter 3.11. It, it, it says, as do evil. As do evil. Will you say it with me? Let's say it. As do evil. And now, do you know what it means to as do evil? You know, it sounds a little bit like when you sneeze. As do, right? As, as, as do evil. Okay? <laughs> Uh, so it says there, as do evil. You know what it means? It means stay away. Run away. Stay away from evil. What is that you can see from getting caught in the snare of the devil is by as doing evil, by staying away, far away from evil. That's how you stay away. That's how you stay out of the, the snare of the, the devil. Now, um, when you get home tonight, and some of you older boys and girls, and especially boys, will you ask your father to tell you how you can get out of the snare of the devil if he catches you in his trap? You ask your father how to get out of the snare of the devil. And I believe he will be able to tell you how you can get out of the snare of the devil if you ever get caught in the snare of the devil. I'd like to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for these girls who are sitting here and for all of the older boys and girls in this gathering, I, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to do evil. I pray your blessing upon each one of these young ladies and young men. Would you bless them deeply and guide them in the way of truth and righteousness. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
you want to say that, is, is there a chorus that somebody could lead us in just a, a verse of song or a chorus uh, before we continue on? Does someone, does someone lead a verse of song? Turning back, no turning back. Thank you. You may be seated. We've been looking at Paul's extensive exposition on the sinfulness of man, which began in Romans chapter one and verse eighteen, and goes all the way. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Last night we attempted to look at the uh, at, at verse 18 from chapter 1 to verse 32. And, uh, and, and this evening I want to uh, continue to look at, uh, at the rest of this extensive passage on Paul's exposition of the sinfulness of man. As I said last night, this seems to be the most extensive exposition of the sinfulness of man that you have in all of Scripture. Uh, he, be, he began this section by saying that the Gentile sinner began his journey into moral depravity by holding the truth in unrighteousness. That's verse 18 of chapter 1. And ends the passage by insisting that the Gentile sinner is not only under the, the wrath of God, but is now right for the judgment of God. And that was in, in verse 32 of chapter 1. I, I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious uh, how you felt uh, or what you felt as we looked at this section last night. Um, perhaps it was difficult for you to identify personally with the passage. And so perhaps you said to yourself, I thank God that I'm not like other men. Or did you say to, us, to yourself, there but by the grace of God, go on? Well, so uh, we're, we're going to look at the further expose of the sinfulness of men, uh, beginning in Romans chapter 2, beginning at, at, at verse 1. And uh, uh, first of all, I'm going to be looking at this first section in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and going all the way to chapter 3 and verse 8. Now, uh, before I, I read this passage, I'd like to uh, just help us get this passage into perspective a little bit. It's not too difficult to see if you read this passage, what I, which I am hoping and, and uh, trusting that you have, as you read this passage, it's not too difficult to see that Paul addresses the religious Jew in this, in this section who felt that he was better, or perhaps we could say less of a sinner than the pagan Gentile that is described in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And as I indicated, in this section especially, Paul uh, is like a prosecuting attorney using uh, rhetorical questions and uh, 
penetrating arguments, he brings a scouting indictment against the Jew for his, what, I have, what I'm going to call, his pretentious piety. He does so in an attempt to help the religious Jews understand his need of the gospel and his need of the Savior. Please take note that of the fact that, that those of us who were brought up in the Christian home are vulnerable to the same presumptions that the religious Jew has. And uh, so before I read the text, uh, uh, let me just put a few things into perspective. Uh, note several things about this section. First of all, I noticed that this section, chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3 and verse 8, is almost three times as long as chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Is this significant at all? You see, Paul takes 14 verses to prove the sinfulness of the pagan Gentiles. And then he takes 37 verses, three times as many verses, to prove that the religious Jew is equally sinful and guilty before God. Secondly, notice that this section is not only more extensive, but I find it more complex. I don't know how you found it as you read through this passage. But I find it more difficult to understand and to actually get a hold of what Paul is saying in this passage. I find that the arguments that Paul uses to convince the religious Jews of his sinfulness are, are much more complex than, than what you have in chapter 1, verses 18 through, through 32. And, and tonight, I'm not going to pretend to you that I fully understand all of what Paul is saying in these passages. The, the, uh, the best thing that I can do is, is, is given somewhat of an overall picture of what Paul is saying in, in, in this section. You know, I feel like uh, uh, I understand at least his intention in, in these passages. And so... Um, uh, I, I, with you, I, I, I admit that some of these uh, concepts that Paul is, uh, is, is bringing to us in, in this extensive section is, uh, are very complex and, uh, and somewhat difficult to understand. Now, um, the, uh, the question I, I want to ask is, why is it more difficult to convince a good moral upright pagan or a good religious person that he or she is in need, is a sinner in need of the gospel. I don't know if you found that that way or not. But I discovered that, that that's true in, in my experience in, in attempting to minister the gospel, uh, especially one-on-one with people. Well, one answer to this rhetorical question is that the good moral, upright, religious person easily tends to hide behind a certain moral and religious facade. You see, they feel good about themselves because they have kept themselves from the grosser 
sins, the grosser sins of moral depravity. There is, and, and there, there seems to be something of the Pharisee in any one of us that causes us to see ourselves and our sins as being not as bad as the sins of others. So, the religious person often has this, this sense, and it's, it's really a false sense of self-righteousness. In Matthew chapter 23, and verse 28, Jesus says, the scribes and Pharisees outwardly appear to be righteous. Jesus gave a parable in Luke 18 about two men that went into the temple to pray. And uh, he, he described the Pharisee as, as one who trusted in himself to be righteous. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 3, Paul speaks of the Jew who attempts to establish his own righteousness. Well, so, so uh, it's, it's easy for religious people to hide behind their religiosity and assume that they are accepted before God because of their attempt at living good, morally upright lives. So it seems to me that uh, in, in this passage, especially in, in uh, this first section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 29, and all the, on, on into uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 3 through verse 8, is, uh, it, it, Paul seems to be addressing and, and, and he attempts to speak to the, what I call the pretentious piety of the religious Jew in this passage. Now, I, uh, I have a handout for uh, uh, this uh, uh, message this evening and I, I'd just like to ask that they be handed out at this particular time. Um, and, and so would you do that? Now, the, before we look at the handout and before we give exposition to this passage, uh, I, I, I'd like to clarify my use of the word piety here. You know, the, the, the word pious or piety uh, is, can easily have a negative connotation. And even the way I use it uh, already uh, sort of gives it a negative connotation. Uh, but to live a life of piety uh, is to live a life devoted to God. That's commendable. We're instructed in Scripture to live a, a, a pious life in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when someone is religious without having had a transformation of the heart, then at best his piety is pretentious. It's not real. And let me also clarify as, uh, how we're going to look at this extensive passage here uh, because of uh, how extensive it is and how easy it is to sort of get lost in this passage. I, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole passage at one time. In fact, I'm going to uh, read this, this in four different sections this evening. And so the, uh, the, the first section that I want to look at are the first 16 verses of, of uh, Romans chapter 2. So, uh, uh, would you stand with me as I, I read uh, these the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 2? Um, 
Notice what, what Paul says. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them by, who by patience continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But on glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without, the, without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature things contained in the law, there having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meantime, meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's as far as I want to read in the first section. You may be seated. I don't know if you noticed as you read through this passage and even as I read through it just now that one could lift out of this passage and I I've, I've seen it happen that way. One could lift out of, of chapter 2 interesting truths and concepts. Such truths as, as it gives us in verse 4, the goodness of God leads us into repentance. And, and such truths as you have in, in verse 11, there is no respect of persons uh, with God. Or verse, uh, thirdly, uh, uh, the, uh, the truth of verses 14 and 15 when he says that when Gentiles who have not the law do these things, those things that the law teaches, it shows that they have, they're following, putting this in my own words, they're following an innate sensitivity to God. And so here, here are interesting truths that are, are given in these passages. But we need to understand that Paul is saying all of these things to show the Jew that he was that he has come short of the glory of God. Not only that they have sinned, but they are sinners uh, within themselves. And and so uh, we we're, we're, let me just look. Uh, notice the the back side of the handout, not the front side, but the the back side of the handout. And I want to notice. I notice several things. Uh, uh, four things there about what I call presumptuous piety of the religious Jew and how it is characterized 
in, in four different ways in, in, the, uh, in the first 16 verses. I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this first section, but I just want to bring some perspective to it so that you can further explore it yourself. But there are four things Paul uh, here says that, uh, by which he sort of characterizes the presumptuous piety of the religious Jews. First of all, he says in verses 1 and 2, that he quickly stands in judgment of others, especially of those whose lives are devastated by a life of sin. You have that in verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, the, uh, uh, the religious too easily justifies his own lesser sins, and that's in verse 3. Uh, when, he, when he says, Thinkest thou, O man, that judges them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? But he sees his own sins as lesser uh, than, than the other people's sins. And, and thirdly, in verse 4, he does not sense that he needs to repent. You see that. And then, fourthly, uh, the, he uh, uh, indicates, beginning at verse 5, all the way to verse 16, in different ways, that uh, he, he indicates that the presumptuous, pious, religious person is spiritually blind. Blind to the fact that he or she is under the wrath of God, verse 5. Blind to the fact that he or she will not escape the judgment of God, verses 6 to 10. Blind to the fact that there is no partiality with God, verse 11. Blind to the fact that being a recipient of the law causes him to be judged by that very same law, verses 12 through 16. Now, I want you to notice also, and, and, and turn to the front page of your handout. <coughs> I also want us to notice that in this section, verses 1 through 16, Paul, in an extended way, refers to, in, 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 yes, in different ways, he refers to the righteous judgment of God. Uh, verse 5, he, re, he, he, he makes that statement. He calls it the righteous judgment of God. And so, in, in, so in an extended way in this passage, Paul uh, refers to God's righteous judgment in different ways. And so, uh, what I've noticed, and what, what I want you to take note of in, in Roman numeral number two on the front page, that uh, I find that there are eight criteria given to us in, in this passage, beginning in, in verse 1 through 16, we're given eight criteria of divine judgment. Number one, it is according to truth, verse two. Number two, it is inescapable, verse three. Uh, number three, it is cumulative, verse five. Number four, it is righteous, verse five. It is according to man's actions, according to his works, verses six to ten. It is impartial, verses eleven to fifteen. It is and will be thorough verse 16, because the judgment of God does, is, is able to judge the secrets of men, the secret sins of men. You, a man or woman cannot sin in secret without God 
being there, and in fact, every time you sin, you do it in the very presence of God. And so, uh, there, there are no secret sins as far as God is concerned. So, it, so the judgment of God will be, is and will be very thorough uh, in, in the final analysis. And then also, number eight, it is through Jesus Christ, verse 16. Well, uh, just reflect on those eight criteria of divine judgment um, as Paul gives it in, in these number of verses. Um, but uh, I also uh, would have you notice in, uh, in, in the uh, Roman, number, Roman numeral one in the front page of the handout, the importance and the reliability of divine judgment. I, I just uh, sort of reflect on a few things that caught my attention, uh, especially as I, I read this passage, the interpretation of this passage by Stuart Briscoe, uh, the importance and the reliability of divine judgment. And, and this is what the steward Briscoe says. If God does not judge a man's actions, it means that man's actions have no ultimate value. If a man's actions lack value, then his life is devoid of meaning and, it, and his existence is inconsequential. And he goes on to say that to believe in the fact that divine judgment points to the intrinsic value of human existence. For if God regards what we do important enough to judge, he must regard us important enough to matter. I like that. It says it well. So that, that reminds us of the importance of divine judgment. And we're also reminded of the unreliability of human judgment, which uh, you find uh, uh, noted throughout this passage. A human judgment is unreliable because man himself is a, is, is, is a sinner. He sins and is a sinner. It's unreliable because man is usually biased towards himself. And furthermore, thirdly, he's, it's unreliable because man does not have the full picture of things. And so, uh, human judgment is, uh, is, comes short of perfection, uh, and it is unreliable because of these things. Now, I find it very interesting that, that Paul begins this exposition of the sinfulness of uh, the pagan Gentile in chapter 1, verse 18, by referring to the wrath of God. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, etc. Now, here in the beginning of this, his expose of the sinfulness of the religious Jew, Paul reminds them of the, what he calls the righteous judgment of God. And uh, the, the main idea of judgment here has to has to do with the condemnation that rests on a sinner as a result of sin or of not having a right relationship with God. And, and, and certainly the judgment of God is connected with the wrath of God, spoken of in chapter 1, verse 18, because God's judgment of sin and, and of the sinner is a demonstration of his wrath. Ultimately, the idea of God's judgment has to do with the final judgment of God that will affect one's eternal destiny. 
Uh, and so um, here you have sort of this, uh, uh, these things uh, brought to us in this uh, first section, in the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 1. Now, I'm going to move on to the second section, which begins at verse 17 uh, through verse 29. And I'd like to uh, read this section, which you stand with me again to the reading of the Word. Um, beginning at verse 17 uh, through the end of chapter 2. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and reproveth the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou, therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Very penetrating question. Thou that makest thy boast in the, of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? A question. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision. Are you still with him? <laughs> Are you following? Uh, you know what I, what I mean when he says that his arguments become very complex here. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keeps the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be accounted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You may be seated. <laughs> now, uh, let me reflect on just a few things in, in relation to this, and, and at least give uh, a few things that will help us sort of put some things in perspective. Uh, as I said, I don't pretend to uh, understand all of the nuances of what Paul is saying in this particular passage. But uh, at least in this passage, it seems to me that Paul is addressing three false presumptions that the self-righteous religious Jew has. The, in other words, uh, the, the religious Jew... Uh, boasted in three things that he thought gave him favor with God. Now, in your, you know, the back side of your handout, under this section, I, I noted two things. I, there are actually three things that I would like to note here. And it seems to me uh, that Paul, in a subtle way, is, uh, is, is saying that uh, the religious Jew 
depends and boasts on these things to give him favor with God. And the first thing that he boasted in, and you find it here and you find it in other passages as well, where Paul addresses this issue, is that he boasted in being an ethnic Jew. The religious Jew took, took uh, 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 pride in, in being an ethnic Jew. He took pride in his ethnicity, that he was an actual descendant of Abraham, that he was the son of Abraham in this sense. And he actually thought being a physical descendant of Abraham in itself gave him special status and favor with God. Jesus again and again in his conversation, in his dialogue with the religious leaders of his day, addressed this issue uh, very squarely with them. And uh, he said, yes, I know that you are a physical descendant of Abraham, but in actuality, your father is the devil. <laughs> and so, uh, so uh, Jesus uh, uh, addressed this issue very forcefully with the, with, with the religious Jew in, in his, in, at his time. But here, Paul addresses it as well, because he... Paul understood, and he understood it because he understood where he came from, and he understood what he used to believe. Uh, and so, uh, he believed God made special concessions for him because he was an ethnic Jew. If you, uh, if you go to uh, Philippians chapter 3, you'll, you'll notice uh, how Paul taught this. Uh, about himself. Uh, he said um, in, in verse 5, uh, you're, you're acquainted with uh, this passage where Paul said that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. You know, there you have it sort of in a nutshell. He, he boasted in the fact, and, and he, he was proud of the fact, that he was an ethnic Jew. And then he goes on to say, concerning steel, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. Can you imagine Paul feeling <laughs> like, as far as his obedience to the law was concerned, that he was actually blameless? And, and so Paul understood the mindset of the religious Jews. And, and he precisely understood it in such a way that he could precisely address the issues with them. And that's what he does in Romans chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 3 the, up to, the, to verse 20. And so keep that in mind as you, as you keep uh, uh, reflecting and and seeking for understanding in, in, uh, in, in this passage, especially in chapter 2. So he boasted in being an ethnic Jew. And secondly, he boasted in trust and rested in the law. There, there, there again, it comes through what, what I just read in Philippians chapter 3 about uh, him uh, having perfectly followed the law. And he thought that righteousness was attained through the law. He thought that he could attain a right relationship with God, in other words, by keeping the law. 
You see, and not only that, but the self-righteous too, not only boasted in the fact that to them was given the oracles of God or the law of God, but they gloried in the fact that they were themselves the oracles of God to the world. So they were the teachers of the law to the rest of the world. And that's why Paul talks about what they're, what they're teaching. And, and he asks them those penetrating questions. If, if you teach about this, do you actually keep what you're, you're saying yourself? Are you actually doing what you teach others that they ought to do? And you have this in verses 19 to 21 here in Romans chapter 3. The irony of it was that the Jew didn't practice what he taught. Paul addresses that very forcefully here. And Paul said in verse 23 that by not practicing the law, they broke the law and thereby dishonored God. And furthermore, he said, this caused the name of God to be blasphemed by the Gentiles. So, he, number one, he boasted in being an Ephesian. Number two, he boasted and rested in the law in these several ways. And number three, he boasted in being the recipient of the right of circumcision. Again, we have a difficulty understanding uh, how the Jew uh, rested and boasted in, in the right of uh, circumcision here. But he thought that the right of circumcision, this act of circumcision, itself gave him special status with God, just as some today think that by taking the elements of communion gives them eternal life. <laughs> Does it? No. And, and neither did, 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 did having the right of circumcision exercise to born a, born a, a man or a religious Jew uh, give him special status with God. It was a sign of the covenant relationship with God. And, and the act itself was, was, was not meant to be a status symbol for him, reflecting on the fact that he has, he, he, he has a special relationship with, with God as a result of the, the right of circumcision. So Paul insists that circumcision is of value only if you kept the law and kept it perfectly. Verse 25 to 27. Furthermore, true circumcision is after the heart and not of the flesh. And that's verses 28 to 29. Well, uh, there, in a, in a very quick way, I attempted to work my way uh, briefly through chapter two. Um, are you are you still with me? <laughs> I, I know that this is preponderant uh, as uh, as we look at, at these in these chapters. But I remind you again that I, I didn't produce this text. <laughs> I'm, I'm attempting to give some to understand uh, this text and to give uh, some understanding to it so it can be meaningful for you. So uh, keep working at uh, this uh, this text that uh, you have here in Romans chapter two. Now I'd like to turn to the third section of uh, uh, Paul in in Romans chapter three and the first eight verses. 
which uh, Paul, where Paul uh, speaks to the, the question of whether the, the Jew has a unique advantage. So Romans chapter 3, the first eight verses, would you stand with me as I read this particular section? Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I'm sorry. I'm in Philippians chapter 3. It would be much easier to expound on that than on this one. <laughs> uh, but uh, Romans chapter, chapter 3, the first verse. What advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, much every way, as Paul says, is simply because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. There you have it. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sins, and mightest excuse me, overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we slanders as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. You may be seated. Here, Paul is uh, uh, addressing a particular question uh, to the Jews in verses 1 to 8 in Romans chapter 3. He begins this passage with this rhetorical question uh, Is there an advantage? What shall we say then? Is there an advantage? What advantage has the Jew of what profit is there of, of circumcision? And uh, so, what is the advantage of being a Jew? Uh, he begins this question with this, with this rhetorical question. You see, Paul had been saying that being a recipient of the law and being recipient of the right of circumcision does not mean that the Jew, I'm putting this in my own words, again restating part of what Paul is doing in chapter 2, chapter, chapter two but Paul is saying that being a recipient of the law and being recipient of the right of circumcision does not mean that a Jew is not a sinner like other men who are born in the family of Adam. Paul is, is very forceful about this. So, Paul anticipates the question here that he asks. And addresses in, in the first eight verses of chapter chapter three. So he anticipates the question: So, what advantage is it then to be born a Jew? In essence, is what Paul is addressing here. Uh, no doubt, no doubt in my mind that this is a question uh, that 
was defiantly thrown at, at Paul again and again as he attempted to minister the gospel to the Jewish people in his three missionary journeys. Um, the, uh, during, during this, this time. And, and so, uh, <coughs> it's no doubt that Paul heard this question coming to them again and again as he emphasized the fact that, that the Jew is, is a sinner just like other men are sinners. And so the question is, so what advantage is there in being a Jew? Is there any advantage? Uh, why be a Jew then? And so uh, Paul anticipates this question. And I find, as, I, as we continue reading through these eight verses, I, I find that, that uh, hidden in this question, follow me closely here, hidden in this question is another question that, uh, that, uh, that is something like this, that I put it in my own words. Should we go ahead, in fact, Paul said that some people say, uh, are, are saying this is what I'm actually saying. <laughs> so I find that hidden in this question is another question that says, should we go ahead then and give ourselves to a life of sin like the pagan Gentiles do? If there is no advantage in being a Jew, and if we're guilty sinners just like uh, pagan people are guilty before God, then should we go ahead and give ourselves to a life of sin? Well, the Paul goes, uh, the same question may be asked of us who are born in a Christian home. And I believe the same answer applies. Ever heard this question? Maybe stated in a little bit different way. I, I just heard it recently again. When when someone came to me and said to me, you know, um, I I find that uh, those who are who who have gone into a deep life of sin and and uh, they have uh, repented of their sins and been gloriously converted and have a a great testimony. He said, I, I just sort of stand in, in envy at that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and, and so it seems that they have a, a greater fervor for the Lord than I do. And, and so, uh, in, in essence, they were saying, maybe I should have gone into a deep life of sin so I can have this kind of testimony. Have you ever heard that? Or is that insinuated? Well, this is sort of the kind of thing that comes through here in, in this passage, in, this, in these eight verses. And, but Paul goes on to say that the chief advantage of being a Jew has, uh, is, is, the, is that to them has been given the oracles of God or the Word of God. The, the oracles of God. Well, and so he says the chief advantage of, that the Jew has 
is that they have been exposed to the revelation of God, the revelation of His Word, all of their lives. Now, the same thing applies to us who are born in a Christian home. Does it, does it, mean, does it, does it mean that because you were born in a Christian home that you're not a sinner like those men and women out there who weren't born in a Christian home? Does that, is that what it means? No. But having been exposed to the Word of God all of our lives, it's a great advantage to us. We need to understand that. And Paul is saying it was a great advantage to you to have been given the oracles of God, the law of God. But having a Christian heritage, however, doesn't mean that we are sinners like others are sinners. Do we understand that? Nor should we go out and sin greatly so that we can realize that we are great sinners. No. You see, I've discovered in my own personal life that one does not have to sin greatly in order to realize that one is a great sinner in need of a, of a wonderful salvation. But being exposed to the Word of God enables us to understand by the revelation of God that we are guilty sinners before a holy God. That we are under the wrath of God and under the judgment of God. And that we, yes, we need a Savior. Just as much as the pagan sinner out there who has given himself to a deep life of sin, we need a Savior just as much as He does. Do we understand that? I trust, I trust we understand that. So, now having said that, let me come to the final passage uh, in, in this extensive section, the final section in this extensive passion, uh, a passage on, on the sinfulness of, of men. And it's the, at verses 9 to 20, in chapter 3. The final indictment here is what I consider to be the final indictment of the sinfulness of all men. Would you stand with me as I read that? Chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. Listen to what he says. What then? And here is the conclusion of the matter. Here is Paul as a, as a prosecuting attorney giving his final argument. <laughs> and and uh, and so here it is. What then? Are we better than they? What a penetrating question. Who, who are we and who are they? Are we better than they? No. In no wise. For we have 
before proof, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. And here's where I get the title for this message. All are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands, there is none that speaks after God. They are all going out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ox is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and mystery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You may be seated. Again, think of Paul as a prosecuting attorney who, on the behalf of God, is bringing all men into the courtroom of heaven and indicting all men as equally sinful before holy God. And as I said, here Paul brings the final argument, the final indictment. And it is precisely, powerfully, and forcefully given. Usually, I give my students a study question on this section, some that goes something like this. Why does Paul say that the Jew is no better than the Gentile? Do verses 9 to 18 give a fair assessment of the sinfulness of pagan Gentiles, religious Jews, and quote-unquote ethnic Mennonites? Why? Or why not? I would put this question to you this evening as well. Have we personally considered and felt the impact and the implication of this indictment here in verses 9 to 20? You notice that, again, Paul begins with a rhetorical question in verse 9. Are we better than they? In other words, are we Jews better than they Gentiles? In other words, are we just as sinful? That's the implication of the question. And how do we answer it? Is there a moral difference? Do we have a moral edge over the pagan Gentile when it comes to our inherent sinfulness? And the answer Paul gives is in no wise. In other words, absolutely not. And Paul goes on to say, we have proven 
And here, I would have you know that the word proven here is the parental term used in a court of law. We have, we have proven, we have substantiated the fact of the sinfulness of all men and given supporting evidence of it. Beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3 and verse 8. And he goes on to make a forceful statement when he says, All are under sin. What does that mean? What does it mean to be under sin? Well, I believe it means that all are under the power of sin. All have a sinful, a sinful propensity transmitted to us by the virtue of being born in the family of Adam, in a fallen family of hum- the fallen family of humanity. Consequently, all are under the wrath of God. All are under condemnation. All are under the sentence of death. Do we understand the implication? So then Paul goes on in verses 10 through 11 to give a sinful indictment of the sinfulness of all men. Let me just note here that these six things that Paul says in verses 10 through 11 are very precise and, and very forcefully stated. Let me only note that this is the way God sees a sinful heart that has, been, has not been touched by the transforming power of the gospel, whether pagan Gentile, religious Jew, or ethnic Mennonites. And Paul goes on to say, it is written. In other words, this is not a concept charge. These are not Paul's charges. These are God's charges. These charges have precedence, are based upon Scripture. They're all found in, in, in the Old Testament in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 4, and in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Notice the charges, the indictments. And when you, when you look at these charges, uh, you want to say, is that really me? Before my heart was transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is none righteous, no, not one. You know, I don't like this any better either. <laughs> but it, but it's what it's what the Holy Spirit wants to bring to our attention. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none to understand. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become uncomfortable. It's a very thoughtful charge. There is an 
he concludes this by saying, there is none good, no, not one. And then Paul goes on to substantiate in verses 13 to 18 the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the six charges that he gives in verses 10 to 11. And so here, are, then Paul goes on to give eight ways to which man's sinful nature expresses itself. And these eight expressions of a sinful heart substantiate charge that all are under sin. That's the way we naturally come into the world. Their throat is an open sepulcher. That means an open grave. With their tongue, they have practiced deceit. The poison of us is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Have you noticed that in these, these uh, first four charges uh, that he gives to us uh, about sinful man and his natural condition all have to do with this section right here in our anatomy? It has to do with our speech, it has to do with our tongue, it has to do with our mouth. Isn't that interesting? Then was it Jesus who said, by thy, by thy words thou shalt be condemned? <laughs> Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and mystery are in their path. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here, again, I say Paul is forcefully and powerfully uh, asserting the the charge that uh, is given by God on sinful men. And then he goes on to give the threefold purpose of the law in verses 19, 19 and 20. And we'll be looking at that a little bit further tomorrow evening. Now let me, um, in conclusion here this evening, again, uh, let me come back to uh, the question that I have asked several times in the last couple of evenings. Why does Paul, as a prelude to the doctrine of our salvation, give this extensive treatise, this extensive expose of the sinfulness of all men? Well, let me just give two quick answers to my own rhetorical question here. Number one, that the message of salvation, the good news of the gospel, means nothing to a man or woman unless he or she realizes his or her utter lostness or utter sinfulness. Remember, I told you how that in our uh, early years of ministering to First Nations people, we, we ministered one on one, house to house. And uh, I would sit in with these people, and, and as we get acquainted, I'd eventually turn to the scriptures and, 
and, and, and explain the gospel to them. And you know what happens? Nothing. There's no response. You know, regardless of how excited I attempted to, to explain the, the, the story of Jesus coming and dying and, and becoming a sin sacrifice for us. It's just their, their eyes were continued to be dull. And, and it just sort of went over like this. It passed them by. Why? Why? It's because they didn't understand that they were lost in need of the gospel. So I, I finally realized that before you can save them, you need to get them lost. <laughs> or help them understand that they were lost. I'd like to, to pause here and, and test, tell you about my neighbor, Chris Hamilton, who was my neighbor in Catholic Virginia. I, I don't know if I, I should do that uh, at this time, given the restraints of time. But I believe it will. <laughs> um, we, we moved in, into Catholic, we built a retirement home. And uh, we had a, a neighbor next to us. His name was Chris Hamilton. Well, we had some early association together, and uh, you know our, our relationship with Chris wasn't always easy. In fact, it, it was somewhat difficult and strained sometimes because, well, he he was a drunkard, and uh, he. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he, uh, his, his wife left him because he said, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, and so, uh, but one, uh, it came to the place where uh, Chris became sick. And um, to discover that he, uh, his, he had kidney failure. And, um, and, and so uh, he had to go on dialysis, and so he, he wanted a transplant. And uh, so he got in touch with the University of Virginia Hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, requesting a, a kidney transplant. One morning, early one morning, there was a knock on my door, and I went to the door, and there was Chris Brother. He said, uh, Wayne, he said, are, are you a minister of the gospel? I said, yes. He said, well, my, my brother needs uh, someone who will counsel him because the Virginia, the, the uh, uh, University of Virginia Hospital refuses to put Chris on a list for a liver, uh, a liver transplant. Did I say kidney? But for, for a transplant was that, uh, was because they won't put him on that list unless he gets counseling and deals with his, uh, with his alcoholism. And so he wondered if I would if I would consider being Chris's counselor. And so I said yes, I would. 
So I wrote a letter to the University of Virginia Hospital explaining what I do, how I meet with Chris, and how I work with him in relation to this matter. And, uh, of course, I began meeting with Chris every so often. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> you know what I did. I, I, I almost immediately attempted to share the gospel with Chris as a, as a solution to his, his sinful lifestyle and, and to his sinfulness and, and to his drunkenness. And, and uh, you know, I, I, and again, I, I, uh, I, I, I shared the gospel with him, but, you know, Chris just sort of helped me off. He just pushed me off. You know why? Because I finally sensed that Chris didn't understand how much of a sinner he really was. No, he didn't. He, he rested easy in his sins. And so he just pushed me off. Well, uh, things got very serious very fast. Because I was working, uh, I was at work one, one day with my son-in-law, and I got a call from Chris's family saying, we're at the uh, University of Virginia Hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Dad is on his deathbed. He is dying. Would I, would I come? And so I rushed home, uh, and Ed and I uh, took off and, and went to uh, for an hour and a half, took us an hour and a half to get to the University of Virginia Hospital. And uh, I, I walked into the room, and there was this uh, alienated wife holding Chris's hand. And there were his, his family, his daughters, and his, his son were gathered around him at the hospital bed. And Chris was sitting up, and I could, I could look into his face, and I saw that he, he was aware of his surroundings. And, I, and somehow I knew that I just had a little space of time here. And so I knelt down in front of Chris, and as quickly as I could, and as simply as I could, I once again explained to Chris the, the, the way of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just had a little window of time. And I urged Chris, he could not respond at this time anymore, but I knew that he was alert. He understood what I was saying, but he couldn't say anything. And I said, Chris, you don't have to say anything. You just have to reach out in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, I'll never forget how Chris stared into my eyes at those moments as I reached out and put my hand on him and prayed for him that his heart could be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Deeply within my eyes, he couldn't say a thing. The nurse came in, gave him a shot, Chris laid down, and went into a coma and died that night. Folks, I'll never know. I'll never know. Whether I'll meet Chris in the Portland of Glory someday. I don't know. But I knew that at that moment, Chris had a sense of desperation that he never had before as he stared into my eyes. I had as simply as I could explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to him one more time. I had the opportunity to family asked me to his funeral, the opportunity again to preach the gospel to his family, extended family, and friends. 
But folks, um, unless unless we understand the depth of our sinfulness, we have no basis for understanding the enormity of our of our salvation. And it seems to me that is why Paul is so forceful here in, in this particular passage. Yes, folks, um, you, you do not have to sin greatly in order to know that you are a great sinner. But we do need to understand the seriousness of sin and the devastating effect of sin, regardless of how little or how greatly we sin, upon the human personality, upon us. Yes, I repeat, you don't have to sin greatly to understand that you're a great sinner in great need of a Savior. And even if we don't sin greatly, we can experience great forgiveness because He took the same sacrifice on the cross for me as it, as, as it, as it did for my pagan neighbor. And so, it seems to me that this is something of the, the burden of the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and, and verse 20. So this is why he does this extensive, extensive expose, not only of the sinfulness of the pagan Gentile, but also the sinfulness of the religious Jews and, and the sinfulness of all men. Because we need to understand in order to deeply appreciate our salvation, we need to understand the awfulness of sin that all of us are equally sinful and equally guilty before a holy God. And we all come to God in the same way, by the same path, by the path of the cross. Well, God bless you as you absorb the, uh, the powerful lesson that Paul gives us in, in, these, in this extensive passage, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, all the way to Romans chapter 3. God, I just pray that you would open our eyes to the revelation of your word, especially here as it's given to us in relation to the sinfulness of all men, especially as it's given to us here in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through verse 18. Lord, I pray that you would just reveal the truth of this new word to us and the greatness of our need and the greatness of our salvation. I pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing. 
go with us and continue to speak to our hearts. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.